When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to Status Pending. This is episode two of chapter four and a real special treat for you, especially if you're a fan of true crime podcasts as Heather and I both are. Amber Hunt was one of the people and the main reporter on the podcast Accused, which was an investigative podcast the Cincinnati Inquirer released in 2016 following an in-depth sort of special report that they did on the Elizabeth Andes case. At this point, if you haven't listened to the series or maybe like as was the case with me, if you hadn't listened in a couple of years, we would again encourage you to do so. There was a lot of great reporting done on it. And then refer back to this episode here. As we talked to Amber, we had a, a good long conversation with her about the case and about what it was like to put together that podcast. This one wasn't any better or more interesting or more deserving. Honestly, this, this one came to me because uh, an editor handed it to me. Um, and I, I say that because not because I don't think that her case stands out. It does. Um, but there are so many deserving cases out there. If I could do all of them, I would. Uh, so with this one, though, it's one thing to, to know that it's a good it's a it's a worthy case to cover. It's another thing to, you know, like figure out that it would um, it would stand up to like an in-depth treatment. And this one had a lot of twists and turns in it. Um, and, and there were other components. Like you don't like to think about like a victim, whether a victim's a victim and nobody deserves uh, to be hurt. But when you're doing some kind of long form storytelling and you know that you need people to be invested, it does matter if you have a sympathetic victim, you know, somebody who maybe didn't put herself in harm's way, um, and there were avenues that clearly hadn't been pursued properly by police. So all of that stuff let me know that it was meaty enough to to cover. We noticed, too, a lot that um, I think you, you pointed out a few times, too, in the podcast that some people were pretty hesitant to talk to you, even somebody I remember hanging up on you. So how wh why do you think? so many people were hesitant. Do you think it's because the case was so old or maybe they just didn't want it to be brought back up in their life? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? I'm hung up on it every day. <laughs> so, so it doesn't stand out that much to me. And part of it is that, you know, people really, everyday people do not need to talk to me. And in fact, I have knocked on many doors of grieving people and wondered why the hell would you talk to me? Um, and I'm very sensitive when they don't want to, because, you know, 
when you're a crime reporter, sometimes you're showing up, a lot of times you're showing up on the worst day of somebody's life. Mm -hmm. So I just say, look, you know, the story is going to be written. I would love to talk to you about it. I would love to try and make this make sense to other people or at least that or or at least that we can like share how nonsensical it is in hopes of in hopes of trying to do some good here um but if you don't want to then don't talk to me that's okay um where i am unforgiving about it is when it's a public official you buggers are paid to answer questions so i do not uh stop <laughs> when when it's somebody who you know, is the county prosecutor or, you know, even even police, they have to protect their investigations. But when your investigation is 40 years old and you're not making any progress, I think it's fair to answer a few questions from a reporter. That seems okay. Mm-hmm. So, so some people, they don't want to talk to me because they don't know me, which is fair. They, they don't. Um, and so those people, I usually try and, you know, uh, send them a letter or somehow say, you know, you can check out my website. You can talk to other people who, whom I've interviewed, like do what you need to do, do your due diligence. And if you're still not comfortable, that's fine. But if you're a public official, then that's what you're paid to do. And then I get snooty. <laughs> I agree. Um, what do you think was the most difficult part about this particular case to investigate? So I'm starting, I'm starting work on season three right now. And all all of the cases start the same in that I am completely overwhelmed at the beginning. So the difficult part is that um, you don't know where it's going to go. You know that there's a story worth telling. I'm I'm not going to let myself get married to any uh, narrative because to me that's not reporting. That's inappropriate. I need to come in, you know, with a blank mind and follow all the leads, just like. I wish police would have done once upon a time. So, um, so that's the hardest part for me is just like knowing that I don't know where it's going to go. I have to stare at the wall a while um, and like have little eureka moments like, oh, I need to make that phone call or, oh, I need to do this. But it's so slow at the beginning that it's, um, it's kind of painful. So that, that's really the hardest part. And then on the backside once you've done all of this research and I mean, it's, it's, it was enough to fill a book, obviously. So um, once you've done all that, you you have to figure out, okay, what, what kind of story am I telling? How's my tone uh, supposed to be? How, how can I do right by the victim while not, um, while not breaking any journalism guideline code? You know, I, I don't let myself get married to a theory either. Um, so the organization ends up being really difficult on the back end. The case information that you were given, I, I guess I wasn't clear. Was that the official case file that you got through the family's attorney or was that something else? It was a case file from the family's attorney, but I wouldn't call it the official case file. So there were two packets. Um, the first one came from Debbie Lydon, the lawyer, and she had basically like she, she put together, I want to say it was like a 12 or 15 page, maybe somewhere in that like synopsis of, of the work she had done and basically a case overview. Um, and she definitely has a, um, a person 
who she favors. Um, so, so a lot of it was about this particular um, person of interest. I don't know what to, they're not suspects because I can't call somebody a, a suspect. I'm not a cop, so it's not a suspect, but somebody interesting that I think should have been talked to more. So she had this packet, but then I FOIA'd, uh, I filed a Freedom of Information Act um, from the Oxford Police Department, and they did uh, supply in a few more documents that I didn't have. And then it was just a matter of like getting more and more and more, including trial transcripts, and those are a thousand pages, and um, all these memos, a good chunk of that stuff um, came from Debbie because she had already gone to court to fight for it. So then my job was to read through everything, uh, catalog it, try and find things that other people hadn't seen. So do you suspect there's more police documentation that they have that you haven't gotten? Yeah, I do think that there's probably something or other that's been held back. And, uh, um, we have an issue with the physical evidence in this case. I I swear to God that that box is going to turn up. I just I just really think it will um, because there's no documentation showing that it was destroyed. So um, so yeah, I think there's stuff out there, and I would I am told I don't have any way to prove or disprove, but I'm told that there doing work um, now, following up on our leads. Uh, so I'm, I'm certainly hoping that they have more stuff that didn't exist before that, that they're looking at now because they're doing their work. Well, you're more optimistic than I am on the physical evidence, I'll just say. But um, I'd love for that Don't to turn out because you've, <laughs> you've, you've seen that happen before. Or so, you I know. have, I but have. The, you say they're working on something now, though. What? Oh, what's the gist of that that you know of? Um, well, recently I was thinking I wanted to update the case, and I kind of, because I haven't heard from any of my sources that um, police have come back and talked to them, I thought, okay, well, and then I guess it's time to do an episode saying, hey, jerks, they're not, you know, you guys aren't doing anything. Um, but when I started looking at that, they they tell me that they are right now in in the process of interviewing some of the people i mean i had a very it's a, it's a weird position to be in um as a journalist because usually you 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 aren't uh you aren't in a position to like say hey did you enter this into uh you know vicap a, a federal database that looks at um possible connections between similar looking crimes have you entered it in that? Have you talked to this guy that I talked to? You know, like it's it's a little odd to be in that position, but I am in that position because I I found people that police said they couldn't find for 37 years. Mm -hmm. And and I called them up and you know what's funny is when you, you know, call people, a lot of times they answer. Um and if you knock on a door, somebody might tell you something. In other words, if you do the work, you might actually uncover something. So um, when at, by the end of the podcast reporting, we had assurances that, you know, 
great. This is all great. Thank you so much. We're going to go knock on this door. We're going to, you know, we're going to keep going. Um, but I didn't think it was happening. I'm told now that it is. So uh, the sound you are hearing is me knocking on wood. <laughs> <laughs> How was the reception by the jurisdiction to your podcast? How did the police take it that you heard of? It was a weird reporting experience because while we were doing the reporting, I felt like we had a good relationship with um, with police. And then right as we were, and we, we even held off on releasing. We were going, we ended up releasing in uh, late September, I think it was, but we were planning on being ready in the summer and we probably, we could have gone in the summer, but police said, you know, oh, we've, we've started to do this leg work. Could you hold off? So we held off for two months and, and nothing was done in that time. So we're like, no, you know, you've had 37 years. I'm not going to sit around indefinitely. You've got to do your job. So, so right before we released for real, um, a representative called up. They, you know, talked to my editor for, I think, an hour trying to convince us not to do it. And all of that would have been, like, I would have been fine holding off. I'm one of the rare reporters who's like, you know, no, I I don't want to screw up your investigation. But I didn't have any real sense that it was for anything other than covering their butts. So, so then the relationship wasn't as positive anymore. Um, now that that's with the police on the prosecutor side, um, there were never any overtures. So, so I, I was never, um, embraced by them at all. They didn't even pretend they just did not like me. So, um, but that, that's what happens sometimes in this job. We just had a case last month. We do a case a month, a situation where an arrest was made that same night and they pressed charges and the case didn't even make it past pretrial. There was no evidence. And so they, they let him go. It's different than an acquittal, obviously, in that that person could be tried again sure. or could be tried. But to me, I mean, it's one thing by the book the way it's supposed to be, and it's another thing in reality for the police in a case like that and a case like yours where they're not necessarily incentivized to look at somebody else other than the person that's already been charged for the crime. I mean, they should, but when they do, it's like, well, why didn't you – do that the first time so it's kind of a unique thing and they and they aren't incentivized because when it comes out in trial that you know oh they looked at three other suspects uh they worry that before a jury that will sound like oh hey there were three other people this you know this guy didn't do it because there are these other and and so that's the problem but the truth is that you know if i were on a jury which i so far have not been chosen for and probably won't but if I were on a jury, I would want to hear that they they tried and tracked down all of these other potentials because if they did and they ruled them out, that's good. That that points uh, more strongly at the person they're leaning toward. I'm actually writing an update on our season two case right now, and and it's interesting because it's come out in the past couple of weeks um, that police did look at the guy we posit, you know, as an alternate suspect, they did look at him, but they, uh, they never admitted it. And it's like, and that's a real problem because they actually destroyed evidence related to him. And so now it can't be tested. 
but it's like why why not just be open about that trusted jury to understand that that's part of the process mm-hmm. you have to look at everybody i want you to look at everybody do you think that you have come across the person i won't ask you to pick but do you think you've come across the person that is responsible for the crime that was my question i didn't know how to word it <laughs> <laughs> and it and it is a common question um <laughs> I feel very, very strongly that um, that the the two living people we reached who should have been better questioned at the time need to be questioned seriously today. Um, and and I absolutely they're one of the two. I'm just like, you know, he's right there. Just go talk to him. Just I don't care if he didn't do it. I just need you to do your job. I found him. Why can't you? <laughs> so, um, but I, I never, I'm very, um, so when you're, when you're a reporter, you, you learn to, uh, obviously set aside your personal preferences. And, you know, I don't believe that there's such a thing as objectivity, but we do have this like muscle memory where we're like, Oh, you know, the fact that I don't like Walmart doesn't play, it, it doesn't, color my stories you know like what I do in my personal life is separate so we get good at compartmentalizing and I'm good at that here because I don't want to let myself get too attached to any one person because I know that that's what police did and as soon as you do that then your ego is attached and then it becomes like oh I told you so that was the guy and and I don't want that even if it ends up being the accused, you know, the the, uh, the boyfriend in season one was uh, interrogated, tried, acquitted. Even if it ended up being him, uh, if you can bring me the solid evidence, I will be open to it. Uh, I have I have zero um, inkling right now to think that he did it, but if you have the evidence, I'm going to listen to it. So speaking of him, the boyfriend, um, something that struck me is like odd, I guess. I don't know if that's the right wording for it, but when they discussed his statement that he signed while he was on trial and it was saying everything that he did, you know, she walked, he walked in, she was alive on the bed, this, that, and the other. But then he's like, no, he twisted my words. This is actually what happened. Like, I just don't understand how something like that can be twisted so badly and then him still sign it. Is that part of the whole false confession phenomena? It is. Uh, there are a, a couple things at play here. He found his girlfriend's body at 9.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. He was immediately interrogated. And by the time he signs this confession, it's 1 p.m. the next day. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't slept. And he just found his dead girlfriend. So... Things start happening um, in in interrogations. We know now that around the three-hour mark, the likelihood of a false confession goes up. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that people get desperate. They just want to get out of there. And it's hard to explain to somebody who hasn't been in that position, but there's a real psychological shift that happens where it's like, you know, you're, you're freeze, fight, or flight instincts start kicking in. I just... I just have to get out of here. And for him, there was probably some delirium in there too. I would argue that all of this is just um, great reason to 
uh, insist on videotaped interrogations. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, you know, Bob's saying that what he, what he said is, like, the, the interrogator would say, okay, so if she'd been alive when you arrived, what would you have done? Right. Well, I would have walked over and kissed her. Um, and then that became, I walked over and kissed her. Right. Well, if okay. you had a tape of the interrogation, then you could see that twisting happening. Okay, that makes sense when it's worded that way. Well, and he's just, at that point, uh, not mentally strong enough or I think even like uh, aware enough to fight it mm -hmm. because he's been interrogated for 15 hours straight and he's exhausted and he's traumatized. And the thing I keep hearing in false confessions is, well, I, I'm, I was sure that they wouldn't find any evidence. So I went ahead and confessed just to get the interview to stop. And what they, what people don't, get is that oh but you're handing them the evidence because your confession is evidence mm -hmm. so just because you're like oh well they can't possibly find my dna or my fingerprints or you know anything tying me to this case well that's great but you confessed and that, <laughs> that that's gonna look pretty bad in front of a jury so right and i think something that helped him in this case too was that the details that were given were incorrect like the what was used around her neck and the um, what was used to tie her up and everything, those details were completely opposite of what he had said. Is that right? If that hadn't happened, if those details had been correct, I, w I would have been... Actually, I probably wouldn't have even been doing a story on, you know, a wrongfully imprisoned guy because he probably would just rot in prison. Like, it, you know, we we don't have the resources to go look up every case in which somebody claims that they're innocent mm -hmm. um so there's that and also he's aware uh that he's he's very fortunate and that his parents had enough money to hire a lawyer because this wasn't an overworked public defender this was somebody who who was being paid to focus on his case and who was damn good at his job and was able to to really present a strong defense not that public defenders aren't worthwhile, by the way. I mean, a lot of them are great, but I don't, I've never met one who would um, argue with the idea that it's tough to put in a lot of extra investigatory hours uh, with their caseload. Right. And I'm sure a public defender in 1978 would have wanted to plead that case as quickly as possible as, as a win. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how it works. With a confession. And, and Absolutely. And in this case, too, it so happened that the head prosecutor and um, the defense lawyer had butted heads before. So it's not like they were guys who went and, um, you know, tossed back drinks, <laughs> you know, after. So it, it wasn't like a, one of those situations where they're buddy-buddy when they're outside of the courtroom. Did Bob's lawyer already thought that um, this prosecutor was capable of making a mistake. So that helps. That helps you go, sure. okay, well, then I need to look a little closer. Mm -hmm. Now, juries have such a different standard for conviction, especially in a criminal trial, especially for murder. So I was realizing today that without physical evidence, even with a confession of somebody else, I'm not sure a conviction's even 50% likely in this case without 
that physical evidence oh, that yeah. apparently doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, no, I think at this point, if somebody, you know, somebody would have to raise their hand, scream it from the mountaintops and have really compelling details uh, that that make a lot of sense. Um, so it, it would be very difficult without the evidence. I don't think it's impossible, um, but we, you know, we expect nowadays yeah, that that the murder weapon is found and that it's tested and, you know, that we've got, I mean, we have pictures of fingerprints, but we don't have much more than that. Um, but I still think that there, there are some avenues that I, as a reporter, can't quite go down uh, because I don't have the legal authority to. And I really do feel like there's there's probably a few more clues out there for them to to look at. Um because some of the stories just don't match up and they should have left mm -hmm. some kind of trail, paper trail, um, evidentiary trail, some something that police can get to that I can't. A couple of months ago, we covered Beverly Jaros. I'm sure you're familiar oh. with her. I have a book of poetry on my desk. Oh, me too. Do you really? Me yeah, too. I do. <laughs> In that case, though, at least according, well, the police are kind of hinting today that they have DNA. So in that case, there's at least a glimmer hope. But here, a jury might convict on a confession, I guess, just because it's been so long if it were compelling enough. But I'm not sure how that would arise. Well, so, I mean, I one of the reasons I'm careful not to... First off, if, if there's not enough evidence to convict, they shouldn't convict. I mean, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that as... I don't want anybody to get away with murder, but if if you're at you know if you're at just fifty one percent, then I don't I don't want you to be putting innocent people behind bars. So you need the evidence. But you know I covered a case in Michigan. Um, a young a young woman disappeared in the eighties. She'd been missing for twenty one years. Her body wasn't found. Uh, the killer ended up getting convicted. And um, and it it felt a little like, oh, geez, I'm kind of surprised they went that route, the jury. But then the bugger, a couple months after the conviction, led uh, investigators to her body. So it was definitely the right guy. And that conviction came, I think it was in 2007. So not that long ago, you know. I mean, CSI effect was well in play there. And another one, a 1990 murder um, they had very little, and the husband was convicted, and that was about the same time frame, like 2006, I think. So it it definitely happens. And in fact, I would argue it probably happens more than it should because, like I said, I'd, I'd really rather you have absolute solid evidence um, rather than just believing police's hunch. Did this case change how you view the process or, you know, the greater legal system? Yeah, it did. And it's kind of, um, I, it shouldn't have, I should have been more cynical earlier on. Um, but I think the scope of this reporting project for me, it, it I was the first person to look at this case in depth in 40 years. And when I was done with it, I was pretty damn sure that I looked at it more closely than the original investigators. Um, 
So I was able to see the missteps and, and more disturbingly, the ego, because the ego really, there's, there's no room in, for ego in an investigation into how somebody died. You know, you personally, as a police officer or coroner or whatever, you shouldn't have a stake in how this turns out emotionally, you know? Oh, I, I, it's like a game of Clue and you get too worked up about it, you know? You sh that shouldn't happen here. And I had covered, I had covered wrongful convictions. I had covered questionable convictions. And I still, I still gave too much um, weight to an officer's hunch. I won't do that anymore. Not because I don't think that those hunches aren't worth investigating. They're absolutely worth investigating, but they're not worth convicting on. That's not what our system is about. Our system is about evidence. So I, I'm, I'm definitely a little more cynical now. How much better do you think the criminal justice system can get as a whole, considering not just the mainstream of cases and how it works, but the extremes? And these are issues that we're starting to talk about more in public because of podcasts like yours and, and others that highlight not as as much as they're highlighting the case, you're also highlighting the process. Mm -hmm. But for a system that covers such a broad spectrum, how much better can it get? It can probably always get better, but will it ever be as good as people want it to be, do you think? Well, probably not, but only because we should always strive to be better. I mean, if you make a mistake in this field, you're you're ruining somebody's life. And if if a if a person is behind bars who doesn't belong there, I mean, we only we're only on this earth once, you know. It's a big deal to mess that up. It's a big deal that um, you know, the guy in season two spent 30 years in prison. Like that's his imagine that. Um I do think that there's there's absolutely room for improvement. And I really do hope that, you know, these kinds of in-depth projects and podcasts specifically help point to some of the improvement areas. Um, specifically, I think, I think we need to be more mindful of confirmation bias. And hopefully, you know, by hammering that home, maybe it'll eventually make its way into police academies and such that you you really have to push back on your gut. You have to say, okay, but what if I'm wrong? Um, so that's a big one. I'd also like to see um, panels in place to to re-examine convictions like within, say, a prosecutor's office, but preferably, you know, somebody who's not employed by them because it's it's got to be a a a. a unpolitical process to look, okay, was this conviction sound? Not, you know, were all the legal T's crossed and I's dotted, but does it look like this person is actually guilty? Did anything happen in this trial that made it more likely for an innocent person to get convicted? I'd love to see more of that. So something like some balances. states have in a, a capital, like a capital panel that some states exactly. have. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I'd love to see that as, and it's tough to argue for something like that because that means you have to pay for it. Um, well, yeah, but there's I, already I, an automatic I, appeal, usually anyway. But the the appeal has to do with the defense and the the legalese exactly. of it all. It has. It's always based on the legality of it. And really, once you're convicted, it doesn't matter anymore if you're innocent. 
What matters is that you had effective counsel or, you know, it's a, it's all about these, these legal loopholes that you're looking at rather than, mm-hmm. yeah, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Like that should count. I've never really heard that talked about. Not much anyway. Interesting. Um, I have just one more question and then Heather, if you have any more, but this is just kind of an ego question that reporters I know don't like to answer, but <laughs> What effect do you think your podcast, season one specifically, has had, if any, or season one and two? What's amazing is that usually as a reporter, you hear only what you screw up, you know, um, and with the podcast, I still get multiple emails a week. and We we haven't released a new episode in uh, a year because I, I did another project, a different podcast. And I'm starting work on season three now. I still get emails all the time from people saying, you know, thank you for your work on this. You've, um, I donated to the Innocence Project because of your work, because I understand what they do now. Uh, I get all kinds of requests to look up cases. And some of these, I can't, um, well, most of them, I can't actually investigate for work. But I think it helps people to just hear like, yes, I hear you. I'm sorry you're in this pain. Um, I, I, I'll try to, I try to forward them to people who can uh, investigate them. Um, I think a lot of it is just people need to feel heard. And they all deserve to feel heard because Beth's case, as much as it matters to me, and um, I, mean, I don't think I'll ever forget get her case I, I this process has been amazing but everybody deserves to have their unsolved murder looked at as deeply as this one it's just a matter of resources that i can't it's not it's not that i don't think they're worth it so yeah i, I know that it's it's mattered to people because they straight up tell me um and and that's really bizarre in the journalism world so um so yeah, I hope I, the nice thing about that is it reminds you like what you do matters and you need to, you need to keep your, you know, ethical wits about you. You need to remember that this does matter to people and you need to do it the right way. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm still trucking. Is there anyone that you talk to that, that you think we're not doing as deep a dive as you did, but is there anyone you talked to that you would point us to to learn more about the case? Um, well, Debbie. Okay. Um, I will tell you she's um, a little uh, – she, she really has her favorite, um, but she gets mad at me when I say it's her favorite. So, <laughs> um, so just be mindful of that. She'll be like, oh, so-and-so is at the top of the list, and, and I'll be like, oh, so he's your favorite. I didn't say that. I'm like, dude, <laughs> uh, there's not much difference. Um, but she, she know, you know, and if nothing else, like that woman deserves the credit. If she hadn't, if she hadn't done what she did, we wouldn't have had the ability to research the way that we did. She already did a lot of the fighting for us. Um, so that was amazing. And then beyond that, you know, I have a handy newspapers.com subscription. Yeah, I love it. It's my favorite. Um, yeah. 
I'm a big believer in going back and reading um, how things were covered at the time. It's pretty eye-opening. Uh, although a lot of um, our documents, or at least our newspaper coverage, um, it wasn't uh, digitized. So I had to go to Dayton in person and flip through microfilm. But but yeah, I mean, it, the, the, I had a student reach out and say she was writing a paper on Beth and was there another source? I'm like, you know, this isn't me being e egotistical. We We really were the first people to compile anything there was barely even any newspaper coverage i noticed so. that when i was researching there's it's like almost all like from your guys's podcast and your website and stuff yeah. and i'm like wow they really went well, deep because, <laughs> yeah well the case you know it happened on winter break kids were gone the prosecutors wanted everybody to believe it was solved and you know it it just were newsrooms were uh, fallible anyway, but we're definitely short-staffed over holidays, and uh, even with the better staffing in 78, that was still true. I, I don't get paid any differently if any more people listen to the podcast. What matters to me <laughs> is that the case still gets attention because it's the only way we're going to get any closer to what happened, and I, I swear to God, it's out there. It's just a matter of hitting the right people, I think, so, so thank you for the attention. Yeah, thank you sure. for all your hard work. We appreciate it.